Well, welcome back. I'm glad you're sharing time with me in this way. I appreciate your time, and I hope these podcasts are looking like help as you start your venture into buying individual stocks. Well, I've been sharing these podcasts with my family and friends for some time now, and one suggestion I've received a couple of times is if I could provide some tools that would help the process of understanding what has been in the podcast so far. It's an excellent suggestion, and it's one from a friend of mine I had in a discussion this past weekend, and I got off the phone with her, and I told my wife her suggestion, and she said to me, I told you that a long time ago. Why don't you ever listen to me? And you know what? She was right and then, and she's right now, and so I am working on one that I will share at a future date. But what my friend sent me was an Excel spreadsheet, and she had captured the stocks that she is interested in purchasing, and all the metrics that I discuss all on one page. It's really that simple and straightforward. So think about it this way. On the left column, she had the stocks she's considering to buy. All of the metrics that I look at. First one is current stock price. The next column would be 52-week high. Then the 52-week low. Each one of these is a column, by the way. The one-year target. The recommendation rating. The P.E. ratio the dividend dollar per share, and the dividend percent yield. And the last column is beta. Now, this is a great start, and I would add some more columns that should be helpful as well. Uh, you may recall that I talked about managing the outcome, and this will start that process. So let's say you had $10,000 to invest, and you're going to purchase five stocks. You could use a spreadsheet and add a column for number of shares proposed to purchase. So you just simply take a column for the total number of shares purchased times the stock price, which would equal the amount that you invested. So another column would be for dividend dollar amount. It's already included. So you could add a column for dividend dollar amount times the number of shares, and that will give you an annual dividend income column in dollars. So let's say your goal is a 3% dividend. Adding these simple columns will give you a spreadsheet that shows your investment dollars and the dividend yield and all dollars invested. You could add columns for date you purchased and date you sold. You could add a column for profit or loss. A spreadsheet of this type is a great place to get started with a tool to help you analyze a stock. And I applaud my friend in Honolulu for coming up with this device. I think at this point, I want to say that you do need to be decisive in your decision-making process. Now, I know you probably don't have much or maybe any confidence yet in my system and metrics, but you do need to be decisive. Please, please, please do not get into analysis paralysis. Look at the metrics I've discussed, and if they fit and you like the company, then buy it. Guess what? You can always sell it. Just don't look at all this data on the spreadsheet and have it paralyze you into a no decision. I would say that I'm a decisive person for the good of it and the bad of it, but in my life, I've really never been afraid to make a decision. I use the best info and data I have at that time for whatever the decision is that needs to be made, and I'll pull the trigger, and for most part, I don't look back. Now, I know many of you out there are not like this. For one is my wife. I think the most decisive thing she ever did was say yes to marrying me. But since then, it's been pretty hard for her to make decisions. She really likes to go over her decision-making process. I mean, I say she's indecisive, but I'll give her credit. When she does finally make a decision, it's usually spot on and a good one. 
I always tell her she made the right decision on me. Now, I'm not being mean, but today she studied vacuum cleaners for three hours before she made the decision. Now, to be fair, she didn't have metrics for deciding which vacuum to buy, and so she did have to study it thoroughly. But this is exactly why I developed metrics to look at in buying stock, because you can really decide in seconds to minutes on whether to buy a stock using my metrics. I'll use an example. If the beta is 1.5 or higher, I'm out. I can see that in seconds. If my wife had a data point on vacuums that said this vacuum is two times more risky than this one, I'm sure it would have made the decision a lot easier for her. So for tools, first, I would take a spreadsheet such as my friend started, and it's hard to articulate in a podcast, I understand. Uh, add the columns that I suggested and start looking at it this way. Since this is a beginner's guide, and if you don't know, Apple Pages or Excel, you can simply put your information on a, on a legal pad to analyze it. Again, a podcast is difficult because I can't easily share visual aids. However, for now, I would say if you want a template, you can email me at jkok7 at hotmail.com and I'll send one to you. For the future, what I'd like to do is somewhat of a video cast where I can show more live tools. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the Khan Academy. It's an app that is one of the most generous and informative apps of all time, in my opinion. Uh, a little bit about them just for kicks, because uh, I'm such a fan of them, but it's a nonprofit educational organization that was created in 2008 by Salman Khan with the goal of creating a set of online tools that will help educate uh, students. As I remember the story, it was a young man who was teaching his uh, high school or young uh, aged niece and nephew on subjects to help tutor them as he lived in another state. Well, I guess he was Skyping them and he found out when he was too busy, he couldn't Skype, so he would record them and send them to him. And after some time, they informed him that they preferred the recording to Skype because they could start, stop, replay, and it's something you can't do in a live setting or in a class. You truly learn at your own pace. Now, while I guess he was hurt a little bit that he didn't understand why they didn't want to see him on a live basis, uh, but now the Khan Academy hosts a wide variety of subjects that students can learn on their own, timing and rate of learning. I've even heard that some school districts are taking this up as a way to educate. Now, I'm not trying to be an infomercial for the Khan Academy, but uh, he teaches math, science, economics, finance, arts, humanities, and test prep and other subjects. So, you know, for example, you know, he'll take it from kindergarten math to calculus, step by step. Simply amazing stuff. I would suggest that you download the Khan Academy app or Google Khan Academy and see what they have to offer, especially if you have young ones and can't explain fifth grade math to them because like me, that's maybe fourth grade's even over my head, much less trying to talk about calculus. Now, with all that said, uh, I would say I have a good face for podcasts, so that is what I will do uh, with the material, but I think it could be better represented in a video and I might do that in the future. Now, before I leave the tool discussion of this podcast, I want to reiterate that the tool that I use for getting all of my information, and I've said it many times, is simply Yahoo Finance. Get everything I need there, with the exception of historical dividend payments for stocks, and I get that from NASDAQ.com. That's N-A-S-D-A-C.com. Okay, moving on to my next strategy and how I think about my retirement money. I think of my retirement money not as a whole, but really as buckets. You know, most of you probably own your own home, and that's a bucket of money that you're invested in real estate. And 
Some have hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity and some just thousands, and that's usually dictated by your age. However, you still have an investment in real estate, and that's a good thing. I just read an article today that talked about renting instead of buying. I'm thinking, what, are you crazy? Real estate has always been a great investment, and if you thought it was high in 1970, which is what a realtor told me in 1970, uh, and he told me, I just don't see it going any higher. Lots of opinions out there. But to the point that the government still allows deductions for home mortgages, which means the government really subsidizes your house payments, I say don't rent. I know my parents were advised by somebody when they were in their 80s that renting would be a good idea. I told my dad, I said, in your 80s, you want to move every year if a landlord doesn't want you there? I said, Dad, you've made all your money in real estate. Now you want to rent? That's just crazy. Well, I talked him out of it, and I don't care what the pundits and talking heads say, but owning property, I believe, is still one of the best things to do, especially over renting. And guess what? They're not making any more real estate. They haven't for a long time. I know that's a pretty obvious statement, but it's true. My key philosophy when it comes to my home and my equity is I don't care. I don't really care if my home is worth a million or a hundred thousand because I have to live somewhere. And if I can afford my house payment, that's all that really matters. I think a mistake folks can make is thinking they're rich because say they have 300,000 in equity and they start spending money and or not saving, both mistakes. The problem is that life is not linear. It's very dynamic. And when the 2008 economic crisis hit, the equity in your house mattered because now you may be upside down or own more on your house than it's worth. My philosophy is this. Don't mess with your home's equity. Don't try and parlay the cash and equity into another home or the stock market. Keep your home separate from your investments. Now, I understand that it takes money to make money, and no risk means no reward. But remember, I'm a low-risk guy. And I know that I have those three little sets of eyes looking back at me that are counting on me to make good decisions. And I say that when I had two little babies in my life. But uh, this is one I can live with. Just leave the money in the house alone. Be conservative when it comes to your home's equity, in my opinion. Now on to other investments and strategies. You may recall in a previous podcast, I talked about diversification and all the complex discussions around that subject. What I will speak to next doesn't really cover that as much as how I treat money in different column buckets. Let me give you an example. The first bucket is my home's equity. I have a strategy for that. I'm going to leave it be, and it's not going to be part of an investment strategy. It's worth what it's worth, and when I have to move, or if I ever have to move, we'll worry about it then. Now, not to get off track, because I, and especially my father, made most of his money in real estate on his uh, business in his home. Uh, it was really a lot of timing, luck, and guts on my father's part. Now, I've said hope is not a strategy in earlier podcasts, so I will certainly say timing, luck, and guts are certainly not strategies. Now, my buckets of money strategy is not a diversification strategy, as I just said. So my second bucket is I have at least half of my portfolio in high-dividend-paying stocks, such as the REITs I've discussed, and in dividend aristocrats. Uh, what this does for me is it gives me an income to live on since I'm retired. Uh, I still recommend high-paying dividends. However, if you're younger and you simply don't need to hire dividend producers, you can still buy any dividend producer and reinvest the dividends. This bucket for me gives me the most of my income, plus my Social Security to pay my bills. Now, this is key for me. I don't have a job. I don't want a job. I don't think people that have employees and need employees want me either. I, either. I was in the sauna the other day, and I was 
talking with a guy and told him I was getting my real estate license. And he said, well, that's great. I'm a broker. Maybe you can hang your license with me. And I said, well, I really don't want to work. I'm not going to cold call. I honestly just want the education, and I'm not sure I'll work at it. And he said, I don't think we have a match. I go, I get it. I'll be the first one in at 10 and the last to leave at 3. But uh, I guess that wasn't a very good first interview since I've retired. Now, the thing that's great about this strategy and what's really important to me is if you have a group of stocks that pay dividends that cover your monthly expenses, it really doesn't matter what the stock market does daily because just like a paycheck, you're covered. I love the feeling of knowing that my income will cover my expenses. The market goes up. It goes down. I don't care. My expenses are covered and everything else is just details. My net worth doesn't matter to me. What I want is no stress. Also, you might say, well, what if the stock quits paying dividends? Happens. I'd say two things. First, if you follow the metrics through these podcasts, you can reduce or eliminate that worry based on picking the right stocks or very strong stocks. Second, the likelihood, and that's why you have well, many of them, the likelihood of all of them stopping paying dividends at the same time is not probable. I've only ever had in seven years one stock reduce its dividend, and I've never had one to stop paying them. So my first bucket is my house equity. My second is to own high dividend paying stocks to cover my monthly expenses, or as I call it, my, my nut of expenses. My third bucket of money is I have a vacation fund. First, I'll say retirement is not vacation. You cannot afford to go on vacation 52 weeks a year. You can afford go on vacation for a week or two, but on retirement savings, that's for the one percenters to spend that kind of money. Oh yeah, I've said many times, I don't have a paycheck any longer, so my income is much less than when I worked. So vacation's really harder when you're retired than when I work. Plus my lovely bride wants to take, you know, both kids and their spouses on vacation too. You can do some quick math on that. That's pretty expensive. So what I'm saying is very obvious. If you can't vacation every day in retirement, you're gonna have time. I'll speak later about time, not yours, but mine, but how I spend time. Now my vacation fund. What I did was open an IRA. I rolled some money into my vacation fund. I, what I did was I invested that money using my strategies from previous podcasts and thought, well, if I at least get a 5% dividend on that chunk of money, that would probably be enough to fund vacation for that year while keeping my initial money intact. Now, important to note, the strategy was never to spend the initial funding, but to spend the profit or yield, dividend, dividend yield on the money to fund our vacations. Also, to be fair, after a career of spending time in hotels and airplanes, I'm not an extravagant traveler. I honestly prefer a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to a fine meal if my family's not there. I, I just don't like that travel anymore. And I despise air travel. It's dirty, it's hard, and I, if I never saw an airplane again, I'd be a happy man. So I have this vacation fund, and if it makes more money than I had in the previous year, then we take a pretty nice vacation. So far, this vacation fund has really exploded into something I can't even spend it all on vacations any longer. So, But I think of that bucket of money as to generate not income, but vacation money for me. My fourth bucket is what I would call value stocks. Now, you may recall value stocks have a low PE compared to their sector or market as a whole. It usually means for some reason they're undervalued and due for a run-up in price. The plan is that the market overreacted and the price will rise. So common characteristics of value stocks include a high dividend yield, a low price to book ratio, and or a low PE ratio. Investors can find value stocks 
using, they call it the Dogs of the Dow investing strategy, by purchasing the 10 highest dividend yielding stocks on the Dow Jones at the beginning of every year and then adjusting the portfolio afterwards. What this bucket of money allows me to do is it allows me to really do some of the Amazon investing, the NVIDIA investing. Uh, but that brings me to the next bucket. The next bucket is what I call fun money. Uh, it's not a huge amount of money, but it, it's substantial. I mean, I can make money on it. It's enough, enough of that. But I use it for the pops and drops, as an example. As Kramer from MSNBC would call it, he calls the show Mad Money. After you've got all your investments right, have some mad money. So I've articulated in detail the pops and drops strategy and how it works. For me, with a limited amount of money, that generates really great returns. Uh, I've articulated the ex-dividend date investments and how you can turn a 2% dividend into 8 uh, by buying three stocks four times a year and increase your return fourfold. Those are the kind of things that I use this, call it mad money or play money with. I use it for that type of fun. I do it all year, pretty much every day, but sometimes I get tired. I just need a break from it for a while. But it does keep you in the game when you have some of this play money. It's really a lot of fun. The other bucket of money I have is cash. I like having really anywhere from 20 to 30% cash on hand in my IRA. Uh, first and foremost is a hedge against a major correction. With my holdings in primarily defensive stocks that pay dividends, even with a correction, I'll still get my dividend income and the loss will be on paper. Also, a correction will happen and history will continue to show that. And when it happens, I like to have cash on hand for also buying opportunities. I've used some great examples of that. Warren Buffett says, when everybody's running out, you run in. An example of that is when the housing crisis happened in 2008, I was still working and had a little cash on hand and I went on a buying spree. Uh, December of 2008, uh, Ford sold for $2 a share. January 2009, Bank of America sold for $3.95 a share. Crazy sale prices. I bought them both. Here's how I picked those stocks. I paid attention to the news. President Obama brought in all the CEOs of the car company stocks, and they were all asking for bailout money, except for Ford. I put that back in my mind. Ford said, we're okay. We're fine. We don't need any government money. Their stock just got hit rock bottom because the car industry was sinking fast, and everybody thought Ford was going to go along with them. Now, Bank of America I bought because simply I felt they were too big to fail. I felt if the government let Bank of America fail, it would have been a worldwide financial Armageddon. And in fact, the government at that time forced B of A to buy Merrill Edge, who was failing at the time. I mean, I've said this before, but I could either go get a Starbucks iced tea or buy two shares of Ford stock. These were two easy choices for me, and I doubled my money pretty quickly when they recovered. Now, fortunately, we don't see too many financial collapses like we saw in 2008. And I'm not hoping for one for sure. But they do happen. And when it happens, you want to be protected and you want to be able to buy some stocks that are on sale. Well, that wraps it up for this podcast. I will get back to you. I appreciate your time. God bless. Take care. Until next time.